All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode ninety-four. Jason Lingren's with me. We're going to be talking about Masonic symbolism, and we're going to be using their own words and their own approved statements um, in a text we came across that's published and approved by Masons and written by a Mason um, that seek to basically inform us all. Apparently, um, and I would add, we in in. Uh, well, let, let me jump forward here. In the second hour, we're going to pick up again uh, on subscriber questions. We got through about half of them. In the beginning of the second hour, we're going to finish up on the Masonic symbolism very quickly and then jump straight over to sub-questions. But to get back to the first hour's topic of Masonic symbolism, um, so many people in the modern age are just completely separated from nature. How often have you talked to a person the living in a city that doesn't even know the, the cardinal directions of the compass, you know, couldn't tell you where east, west, south, north are, um, things like this. Uh, it's a shame. People really need to get back in touch with nature and have a better understanding and not be so dependent on iPhones and GPS and all these other things. And really, at the base of what we're talking about, um, it's, it's exactly this. It's traditions, whether you approve of the source or not, that are still tracking the natural movements of our world, specifically time. And a lot of it's very interesting. I would imagine few people are aware that in older cultures, much older cultures, the angles of sorrow were considered to be the 90-degree angles that we find in a square or a cube. The angles of joy were considered to be the equilateral triangle. We get into these things, but in the course of the Masonic explanation of what their symbols are, we come across these bizarre things like the G. What does the G mean? Well, we find from their statements that they took the G and replaced the equilateral triangle with that G, which was apparently the older symbol used for the same same reason apparently but they don't give us a satisfactory explanation and so here knowing the older explanations that an equilateral triangle has the angles of joy why did they swap it out and if they swapped it out why can't they tell us what it means um, we have many things like this that we go at uh, Jason's got quite a background having tracked a lot about the Masonic tradition so it's an interesting episode anyhow let's jump in with Jason Lindgren all right man welcome to Crow 777 radio podcast this is episode 94 I have Jason Lindgren with me uh, this could be an interesting episode uh, I came across a text that was written by Freemasons approved for Freemasons that basically seeks to explain supposedly out to the general public from my point of view what all their symbolism and everything is about and the reason we decided to cover that is to demonstrate thoroughly there is nothing new under the sun here and the sun is the sun and that's what we're going to be talking about here it's just that now we have text coming into the public forum where the masons themselves are saying yeah man it's about the sun um but anyhow welcome jason in proper dramatic form, we're having a massive thunderstorm here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Good morning, Crow. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a little bit of snow falling, but I can tell you what, man, the days are lengthening and it, it the winter is becoming more mild for a California boy. You know, uh, it's it's just kind of an interesting thing to watch, you know, when you've lived most of your life in a place where there are no seasons. But anyhow, we better jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. In the first hour, we're going to go across the Masonic symbolism explained in the words and approval of Freemasons. And in the second hour, we're going to get right back into subscriber questions because I think we got through maybe, what, half of them or something like that, Jason? Yeah, about. 
All right. Uh, before we jump in, the only thing I have from this week is there's a gentleman, and I mean a gentleman from uh, the UK, who'd been asking me to come over and speak on his channel for a long time. Uh, we finally did that yesterday. The name of the channel is first name Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, and last name or last word, L-I-E-D-T-K-E. Um, and I had a comment with him. I almost hate to announce that I did that because this guy has such a positive comment section going. I barely use YouTube anymore because it's such a troll zone. It's such kind of a foul place, uh, the comments that come in and the just kind of mindless stuff that goes on and the foulness that is brought into a conversation that just doesn't need to be there. So I hope, I hope Martin, that I haven't sent a platoon of unhelpfulness your way. Anyhow, Jason, uh, we do have time constraints today, so are you ready to jump in? I sure am. All right, it's all you, man. So what we're going to discuss here, again, once it really comes down to brass tacks, is astrotheology in relation to masonry. But it's going to get even more in-depth with Freemasonry than we did with just kind of skirting on the, the religious aspects. Since it seems after reading this book that nearly all of Freemasonry's rituals and symbolism are taken directly from the Celestial's clock. It's almost all taken from what were known as mystery schools. And the general definition of a mystery school, if anyone's not familiar with that term, is an ancient school with closely held wisdom and teachings that have been preserved for the benefit of humanity. These teachings are passed down through the oral tradition from teacher to student in an unbroken lineage of physical initiation. The big thing we learn when we look into the mystery schools of ancient times, whenever they actually were, is that they were holding the scientific secrets of astronomy and astrology, which the priests of the mystery school considered one and the same thing. Right. So let's not mince words here, Jason. All these organizations that we've been talking about, even the foundations of all the major world religions are all relating, or in an encoded way, all relating to the same thing here. The mystery schools, I don't care if you're talking about the Elysian mysteries, the Bacchus, what, whatever one you want to point to, the foundation of what we're, cover, what we're covering here today is the same across all of them. It is almost certain, in my opinion, that as we got up into the modern era, the information that had been passed forward was quite corrupted. And not only that, in the modern era, we have places that have ties to certain religious organizations, certain governments. And again, that's going to be a bit like pouring you know, oil into water, in my view. But <clears throat> when you come down to it, there is nothing new under the sun here. But what's interesting about what we're going to cover is someone in the Masonic organization felt the need to publish this book out. And uh, what it basically does is say, yeah, man, we admit all these things. And then what it also does is denies that they understand what a lot of their symbolism means. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. Now, I want to point out the degrees of Freemasonry in the Blue Lodge. And this is before you would uh, choose the Yorkshire path or the uh, Scottish Rite path. The first is called the Entered Apprentice, the second Fellowcraft, and the third Master Mason. There are numerous references throughout the book as to what the degrees actually represent. Each degree has a different sign and a different way that you would be killed if you were to reveal the sacred information that is given to you for the, the particular degree. All of these, of course, reference the celestial clock in the sky. All right here. So here's here's my take on it. 
the three degrees are divided up across zodiacal signs. And when I say zodiacal signs, basically what we're talking about is a place where the sun would be in the course of a year. This all echoes back to the supposed building of Solomon's temple um, or the Jewish temple. And the idea here is that the entered apprentice is going to be right at the spring equinox. And what have we said so often about alchemical procedures on this show? Almost all of them need to start at the spring equinox, which is truly the first of the year, even though in the modern era, some people felt the need to jack it back to January, which is nonsensical. To get back to the point here, by the time you reach the 33rd degree or 32nd degree or the higher degrees, um, you're over symbolically over at the fall equinox, the autumnal equinox in the sign of Libra. And you can make these correspondences all day long. But before we move on here, I want to say, you know, we see this is one of the things that kills me on YouTube. People come and they say, oh, I saw 33. That's bad. This is that. Let me tell you something. It's the people who use a tool that make that tool worthwhile or not worthwhile. And there is a reason why three is used over and over and over. There is a reason why 33 is used. There is a reason for any given number or symbol you can see. There is also a reason why almost every major religion encodes aspects of what we're talking about, the alchemical ideas. You can't point to an organization, I don't care if it's Luciferian, Satanic, religious, Masonic, or I mean, we could go through a major list. They are all involved in the same things that we have been addressing here. So I just want to throw that out, man. Um, it's a bit like saying every knife in the world is a murder weapon. That's not a true thing. If a murderer picks it up, yeah, I guess it could be a murder weapon. But for most of us, you could carve a beautiful statue with it. And these numbers and symbols are no different. And it's kind of a narrow-minded thing to constantly just see, oh, my God, look, there was this number or that number. The problem is, is that a lot of times people are right, because when it comes out of the media, we kind of know what that's all about. But anyhow, there's my spiel, Jason. I think you could sum up what you just said with a tool is what you make of it. Exactly. But it's it's more than that. In the same way, in every toolbox for a woodworker, as an example, you're going to have a saw. Um, there's a reason that saw is there. It's because it's useful. So I'm just pointing out that, you know, these people have hidden all this information for so long. And now that we're up in the information age, so many people are not fooled anymore. But this is all about all of it about aspects of nature. What makes this place tick? The great clock in the sky. That's what all this is about. Go ahead, Jason. So the book we're discussing today is called Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy. It's by Robert Hewitt Brown and was published in 1882. Before we get into about the book itself, who was Robert Hewitt Brown, the author of the book? I found a really excellent blog online that someone had already done some research on him. And this is an excerpt from it. The gentleman who wrote it is named Mark Demarest. So we have a very cursory sketch of Robert Hewitt Brown, the man, born in Albion, New York in 1830, probably educated at Albion Academy and then some law school or other, although perhaps it was all on the job training for him in Wayne County, Michigan from the 1850s until the mid 1860s, serving as a county court commissioner and attorney in Georgia for some period of time in the early 1870s, defending his cousin in an impeachment who uh, had to do with the Civil War and a bunch of uh, not-so-good stuff. And he died young and unmarried in Albion in 1883. And if you want any more specifics about it, the gentleman on the blog does go into more detail. 
So I believe the author here, Mr. Brown, was a 32nd degree Mason. And back in the day uh, that we're talking about, the mid-1800s, it was quite common for any professional person to be involved in a lodge. As a matter of fact, the lodges really probably had much different flavor than what they did today. Um, that's just an observation uh, on my part. But look what we're looking at here. Uh, he served as the county court commissioner. So many of these people placed in high places. This, again, echoes back to what I just said. Why would all these people and all these organizations and all these religions and all these different gathered walks of life all be tracking the same thing? There's a hint. There's a key there. Anyhow, Jason. And let's just be honest here, the the Masons, as well as a lot of the, uh, these other clubs, are good old boy clubs. I help you, you help me kind of thing, and they look out for each other, no matter what crazy symbolism they may use. Right. Uh, and there's plenty of accounts that uh, they became wholly tied to religions and governments um, as the Masonic organization reached into the modern era. And I think that's a lot of the problem that people have. And I'll state for the umpteenth time, the person living next to you in your neighborhood that's in a Masonic Lodge is not a bad person because he's in a Masonic Lodge. And that's all there is to that. Um, it's no different than government. It's these people in places of power that start to be pains in our butts, to be blunt about it. But anyhow, Jason. At the time of its publishing in 1882, there were varying opinions on the book, a lot of which seemed disinterested at best, but not all were of that mindset. Henry Ridgely Evans, a Freemason, also known as a spiritualist debunker and historian of magic, wrote Egyptian Mysteries and Modern Freemasonry for the Open Court in July of 1903. He has some nice things to say about Mr. R.H. Brown. Much of the wisdom of the ancient temples of Egypt and Greece has undoubtedly filtered into the fraternity, although it has been sadly misunderstood and misinterpreted by Masons in general. The esoteric student, however, is able to draw aside the veil of Isis and discover the true meaning of the symbols and legends of the craft. General Albert Pike, than whom no greater unfolder of Masonic mysteries ever lived, has done this to a great extent in his remarkable book, The Morals and Dogma of the Scottish Rite. Robert Hewitt Brown has performed a similar work in his interesting treatise, Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy. Brown empathizes the astronomical origins of the rites of Freemasonry, tracing them back to the mysteries. Heckthorne supports this view. It is a very plausible one in some respects, particularly as regards the third degree of Masonry. In almost all of the mysteries of the ancient world, we see the solar allegory cropping out the death and resurrection of the sun god, and the lessons to be drawn therefrom as regards the life of man. So quite a bit here. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to be familiar with the name Pike and have kind of a dim view. Um, I'll leave that to the listener. But of course, all this is always tied back to Egypt. As a matter of fact, as we have pointed out before, there are Masonic Bibles, and anyone who has seen inside one will see that the Trinity is represented by Osiris, Horus, and uh, help me out here, Jason, spacing out. Isis, Osiris, and Horus is the triune of Egypt. Right. So there it is. And the reason all this tracks back to that point is because of hermeticism. And once you're talking about hermeticisms, you're talking about alchemy. All these things are hand in hand in hand. Um, the one thing that strikes me about certain portions of reading this book is the idea that they'd lost so much info or that earlier Masons had misconstrued what the symbolism meant. And while some of it may be, um, a lot of it, I mean, come on, really? So you got this organization that supposedly goes back into antiquity and you don't 
don't even know what it is you're protecting and carrying forward in your symbols. And again, some of the symbols may be so. There's a funny thing about symbols. The idea was that when information ideas were encoded into symbols, if there came a time when what it meant was lost, but you still had the symbol, supposedly there would come a time when there were adepts or other people who could get back to that single symbol and derive the information back out of it. And that's a very old idea. So there's all that, Jason. Absolutely. Before we begin into the actual discussion of the material, I want to point out, whatever your opinions may be on the man, that Jordan Maxwell has been saying for many years just how important the material in this book is. As far as I understand, Jordan Maxwell was instrumental in the reprinting of this book. He says that it is not a defense of Freemasonry, but a tool to help free shackled minds. Minds constrained by thought patterns, ignoring the obvious, and seeking deep meanings when original meanings are the truth. And that seems to be what I took away from it as well. Right. I, I would, for my part, I would say some of it is a defense of Freemasonry because of the use of the words like admit, we freely admit, or we admit this, and it's usually to do with the sun. Um, and then the next sentence is, but we're not worshiping the sun. The sun is not the God. Um, but to get back to the other thing Maxwell said here, it's what I was saying earlier. There is a reason people track this. It comes back to astronomy. It comes back to astrology. It comes back to the very old ideas of elemental alchemy. And all of these things have to do with the science of the natural world, but more so with time, with the passage of time, with the clock in the sky. And, you know, the problem in the modern age is so many people see this organization or that organization, this is evil, um, or this goes against my religion. And that is a narrow-minded thing. What we're telling you here is there is basically no major religion we can look at that has not encoded the very same ideas about the sky in it. And that may seem blunt to people, but it is what it is. And again, all these groups, they're engaged in the very same thing. They are tracking the sky, and in the Western world, that's almost wholly about the sun and the planets, um, or the idea, I should say, the idea of planets. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. So for the first part of the book, the author begins with a few words to his fellow Masons. The writer of this work was for a long time in considerable doubt as to the propriety of its publication, not because he had any lack of faith in the truth of the theory that it advocates, but from a fear that the revelations it contains might be thought unlawful according to a strict construction of the Masonic obligation. But after consulting with many conscientious as well as eminent members of the fraternity, the author was confirmed in his belief that nothing is said in the book which discloses any of the essential secrets of that order. The essential secrets of Freemasonry are defined by Dr. Oliver in his Dictionary of Symbolical Masonry as consisting of nothing more than the signs, grips, passwords, and tokens essential to the preservation of the society from the inroads of impostors, together with certain symbolical emblems, the technical terms appertaining to which serve as a sort of universal language by which the members of the fraternity can distinguish each other in all places and countries where lodges are instituted. Yeah, so the idea that was expressed here, Jason, as I was reading through this, um, was, hey, man, we don't know if we should publish this. I don't know if, you know, I don't want to reveal any secrets here. But to me, it was the exact opposite. And again, I'll come back to some of the language. Like, we freely admit we're talking about the sun here. But then the, the following sentence is, the sun is not our god. And you see, these are alchemical ideas, and that is a true statement. They, they are not worshiping the sun. It's about aspects of nature, and the sun is the chief focus or, or symbolic 
whatever you would call it, in these ideas. But time and time again in this book, they are referencing magazines that are published for Freemasonry and stating the names of other people who said it's okay for us to do this. But for my money, Jason, there's nothing new under the sun here. And anyone who knows anything about alchemy um, at a decent level will understand everything that is supposedly veiled about Freemason at the lower levels. Chapter 2 is called The Ancient Mysteries Described, and it begins thus. If we closely examine the elder forms of religious worship, we will find in most of them that God is worshipped under the symbol of the sun. This is not only true of those nations called pagan, but we also find in the Bible itself the sun alluded to as the most perfect and appropriate symbol of the Creator. The sun is the most splendid and glorious object in nature. The regularity of its course knows no change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the physical and magnetic source of all life and motion. Its light is a type of eternal truth, its warmth of universal benevolence. It is therefore not strange that man in all ages has selected the sun as the highest and most perfect emblem of God. There is a natural tendency, however, in the human mind to confound all symbols with the person or thing which they were at first only intended to illustrate. In the course of time, we therefore find that most nations forgot the worship of the true God and began to adore the sun itself, which they thus deified and personified. The sun thus personified was made the theme of allegorical history, emblematic of his yearly passage through the Twelve Constellations. <laughs> so here we have it, man, the, the very initial back-in-time birth of acting acting on the stage, people personifying the sun or tales being told like the tale of Hercules. The tale of Hercules is nothing more than the sun and the sign of Leo. Um, but I would make one correction in, in what was stated here. It says something to the effect of it is the physical and magnetic source of all life and motion. Uh, in my view, that's not correct. I would say electrical, not magnetic. Um, if we're going to talk magnetic, I think we would be talking about the feminine aspect or the moon. Um, and that's from alchemical study from some of the oldest sources that I've ever got my hands on. Anyhow, Jason. So I looked up out of sheer curiosity and found uh, from a Freemason website on what God, quote unquote, that the Freemasons worship. And this is what they had to say. Those who oppose Freemasonry will claim that Masons worship a false God whom they claim is, and they spell it G-A-O-T-U, the grand architect of the universe, in some jurisdiction referred to as the great architect of the universe. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let us be quite clear. Freemasonry does not have a God of any kind. Freemasons, however, do profess a belief in a supreme being. Perhaps we should repeat, the organization Freemasonry has no God, no religion, no theology, no dogma, no creed. Freemasonry's members, Freemasons, upon petitioning for membership, are required to profess a belief in a supreme being. They are not required or requested to elaborate any further on their beliefs except to make a positive affirmation that they have such a belief. The term Great Architect of the Universe or Grand Architect of the Universe is used to permit a more generic worship to the Supreme Being of all present. All Masons understand this concept, and when prayers are offered in their lodge, they understand that regardless of the person speaking the words or the manner of prayer or of others present, the prayer is addressed to their Supreme Being. To argue that Masons have a god with the name of Gautu would be similar to 
arguing that a church where prayer is addressed to Most Holy and Glorious Lord God had a false god with the name M-H-A-G-L-G, or when a prayer is offered in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that those worshiping there were praying to O-L-S-J-C. It's bizarre in the extreme. It's beyond bizarre. It's disingenuous. So let's take it apart real quick. Um, The first thing is we're we're not worshiping a god that goes by the name G-A-O-T-U. Well, that's that's a mishmash of the word goat, isn't it? Um, Which I don't think is is helping their argument any. But the idea that Freemasonry has no god, no religion, no theology, no dogma or no creed is ludicrous. Almost everything they do is tied to the Western idea of the Christian Bible, specifically the Old Testament. So if you want to come off saying that you're not, you know, associated with any religion, that doesn't really work out. As a matter of fact, in the book we just read, they go through a number of older religions and say, look, these guys were just allegorizing the sun. And then when they get to Christianity, they stop their argument and they start using it as a reference um, beyond all other things. But they're not using the New Testament to do it. They're using the first five books of the Jewish Torah, which show up in the Christian Bible. So this is all a bit disingenuous um, to me, Jason. I don't know what you make of it. Well, they certainly look to some sort of higher spiritual power. I've looked at enough Freemasonry stuff to really get the idea that they definitely have a spiritual aspect to it. Now, I don't know if necessarily they're worshiping God, whatever God you want to say, but all their rituals and all that definitely have to do with the sun. I already knew that long before I read this book, and I don't think it's it's a worship thing. Well, I can, I can take that apart a little more. Um, this all goes back to hermeticism and alchemy and some of the oldest ideas we can get our hand on. So the idea is not necessarily a god. And by the way, every time they speak about the sun, they will say he, and every time they take talk about the moon, they will say she. These are all chemical aspects. They're ideas. They're aspects of nature, not gods, not any of these other kinds of things. But the idea behind all that, which is intricately tied supposedly to, you know, the the Egyptian hermetic ideas, is that there is a divine aspect of nature which works in a certain way and is, I don't want to say personified, but symbolized by certain aspects of things we can see in nature. And then, of course, all myth comes along and gives them names like Hercules or any other number of personified, you know, the very what I consider to be the very beginnings of of stage acting, literally the very, you know, so there's there's all that. Yeah, absolutely. Chapter two goes on to discuss the most closely guarded secrets of the Egyptian priests being astronomy. The author goes on to point out how the Egyptian priests manipulated the common folk or the profane, with their scientific knowledge that was never openly and honestly shared with them. The people worshipped the sun, moon, and stars as gods, and a knowledge of their true nature would have at once put an end to the influence of the priests, who were believed by the ignorant and superstitious crowd to be able to withhold or dispense by prayers, invocations, and sacrifices the divine favor. So they give this explanation that this is how it started. These priests held this information and let the foolish people or all the people that aren't priests, everybody um, who are who are considered profane, follow these ridiculous ideas that they put forward. And here's my problem, Jason. They're doing the same thing now. So they point out what went on in some supposed mythical time of Egypt when priests started all this. But it's no different than what we see now, is it? Really? No, no. The, the religions are still no matter what you want to think, based off of astrotheology. It's all sun worship. 
Well, not it's not just that, but it's hidden. Um, you know, very rarely do you see a book, in my view, um, that says what this book says. Well, yeah, we admit it's about the sun. Um, the point is, is they're holding all this astronomy and astrology close to their vest, acting like if you're one of us, then you're fit to know some things. But if you're one of the many, you're just profane and you're not fit to know any of this. And what's even more abominable about all this is they're only allowing men into the damn place. I got news for you, Masonic organization. 50% of this world, at least, is female. You know that aspect of the moon you're always going on about? So how in the heck do you, you know, not include 50% of the population of a world? You know, I could logically take these things apart all day. Right, and I think the counterargument by a Freemason would probably be that's what the Order of the Eastern Star is for. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, we could get into that. We don't really have time. But, you know, it's the same thing as Buddhism. Yeah, there's Buddhist nuns, but the degree to which they were allowed to participate is just not there. It's all there is to it. So there's like these token organizations um, where where the fairer sex, for lack of a better descriptive term, is allowed to participate. But in no way, shape or form does it approach what the men have going on and what they're guarding so closely. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the way it is. Now, what's interesting about this whole book is even though it was released to the general public, the author makes no bones about what Freemasons are, that they are the ones that have the knowledge, and that the rest is profane. He says things like profane history, things like that. Now, the Bible is not considered profane history, but either there's Masonic history or sacred history, as he calls it, the Bible is referenced, and then everything else is profane history. So anything else outside of the lodge is profane. Right. Well, let's take that apart for a second. You know, at one point in this book, you know, back in the day, there was this story about Hiram Abiff. He's their chief guy that goes back to the temple, the Jewish temple. And it used to be stated um, all the time for people who didn't know any better, Hiram Abiff was the architect of the temple. And by the way, these guys murdered him. Well, in the modern age, uh, people aren't falling for that anymore. So now they're actually referencing the Bible saying, well, he was a metalsmith. And by the way, he didn't actually get killed. But then with a serious face, they say, so we have this beautiful biblical history that goes with this beautiful mythical allegorical history. No, I'm sorry, guys. You lied. You lied. And if it's not a lie, then you need to step up and say the reason the story of the architect and the death and all this was a personification of what happens to the sun during the acceptable year of the Lord. Then that's something different. But that's not what happened here, Jason. They basically had this nonsensical tale going on that they passed off for so long. And now they're walking it back and saying, well, there's two beautiful stories here. So this is the kind of thing that goes on. And they do it with a straight face, by the way. Yeah, they do. And and the author uses a lot of flowery language in the description of Hiram Abiff, but we'll be getting to that a little bit more in a moment. Yeah, I'm I'm not down with it for this reason. People should have a chance in this world, you know, and so much of what we see in this world, one small group has a playbook and everyone else doesn't. And what that's about is hoarding power. You know, so if you're going to put allegories out, in my view, it should be plain. This is an allegory. It at least gives a person a step to stand on to consider there's more than surface information being passed off. This is, you know, with so much of modern religions in our world, this is another thing. The surface reading is maybe the lowest, most unhelpful reading of what's in so many of these texts. But the average person is being taught by the person standing up in front of the altar that those surface reading words are the thing that matter. 
And I suppose the argument could be made that, well, these people weren't ready to know anything more because they didn't detect there was more there. I suppose you could make that argument, but, you know, that that's my rant here. I just don't think if you're going to have allegory, then call it allegory. Quit acting like it's a real history. Anyhow, Jason. What's, well, in my opinion, disingenuous from the get-go. It is disingenuous. In Chapter 3, the author describes the astronomical facts used for the material. This includes what the zodiac is, the 12 signs of the zodiac, the ecliptic, the signs and symbols associated with it all, as well as the solstitial and equinoctial points and the precession of the equinoxes. And this is all stuff we went over with the uh, astrotheology episode. Right. And here's where we're getting into the meat and potatoes. And here's where we're getting into things that every single person should know something about. How do we place the sun in the natural clock? Well, we use the zodiacal points, don't we? There's 12 of them that will place the sun in any given year. And if you blow that open to long cycles, it will track time over, I guess, eons. But um, I have a problem with the procession of the equinoxes, um, which is mentioned here. I've mentioned it a bunch of times. The idea here is that the world is spinning, and it's spinning like a top. And over time, well, let me back up. You set the spring equinox by whatever sign is behind the sun at the spring equinox. And I've covered this in recent episodes, so I'm not going to get that far into it. But the idea here is that the sign behind the sun now at the spring equinox will not be the same sun in, say, two or 4,000 years. Um, but the way it's described, I don't buy it. It's almost like I know it's slipping. I can see that it's slipping, but not for the reasons we're being handed. It's almost like the clock in the sky has this built-in thing that's not slippage at all. It's like a way to track larger lengths of time. But anyhow, that's my take on it, Jason. Right. You know, all this still has a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say there's a lot still hidden, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, just, just to put a fine point on it, we have covered this. Right now, if you go to astrological means to look at the zodiac, to do things like track time, find out where the sun is, know where the planets are, all these things, you will use the sign of Aries at the spring or vernal equinox. Well, that's not actually where we are. And the reason we're told we're using it is because it's about angles of things, and those don't really change so much. And when these definitions were laid down, Aries was the sign at the spring equinox. Right now, anyone could go into Stellarium, crank it forward to the vernal equinox, and you will see that the sun is in Pisces, maybe on the edge or moving out of Pisces. And then there are plenty of adepts that have written things that have lasted that will claim we went into the sign of Aquarius in 1881. The average person will think this is hokum. Well, let me tell you something. Zodiac ain't hokum. It places these things in the sky, which is our clock for this place. So if we're talking about what sign is behind the sun at the spring equinox, we're talking about longer periods of time, hundreds, thousands of years, this kind of idea, Jason. And just to point this out for everyone out there, there is a lot of argument about when these ages end, how long they are, all that sort of thing. So the mainstream notion I've seen repeated is that we're still in the age of Pisces coming up on the age of Aquarius or the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But some people, as you said, say that we already entered it, and I believe they said that we entered it in the 1800s, correct? 1881, um, the adepts that I most recently went, but that echoes from other texts that put it right in the same era. But here's the rub. Um, you know, people will be familiar with the biblical allegory of the man— the eagle, the lion, and the scorpion. These are directly relatable to astrological ideas and alchemy, okay? They just are. We can demonstrate it. But here's the rub. 
the use of the scorpion is, or the eagle, is a more ancient version of what became the scorpion. And there's a whole tale behind that that I just don't have time for, but it points out a thing. Um, it could be, you know, each sign needs to be 30 degrees wide for this kind of clockwork in the sky to work. It could be things have shuffled around. I can demonstrate outright that, like, the claws of the scorpion used to be now what we call the balancing, the balances of Libra. So things have changed. It's quite possible that along the way, people shuffled things around to prevent the general people of this planet or this world from ever understanding what age we're in. Um, I think that's a likely thing, Jason, but uh, how do you prove it? Right, exactly. And again, we see some wonkiness with the actual time when when these things are actually going on. We, we don't know exactly, but it, it's a, just another example of how we don't really have the exact dating system down pat. Which is about what so much of this is about. You know, if these places truly have kept this old information alive, truly do understand what it means, truly do know how to decode the clock in the sky, then they have, in fact, some form of inassailable history. Not sure it gives you the names and everything specifically, but it certainly gives you the times of a thing. And as I've stated before, if you take a small period of time, like a month, certain things will be achievable within that period of time. If you know that it's likely going to snow in this month, then you know, hey, man, I may not be able to achieve things that I could if it were not snowing. If you blow this out to thousands of years and then you understand something about that period of time, I think you can imagine what I'm alluding to to here. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. In Chapter 4, the author discusses what the ancients actually knew about astronomy, which is a great deal more, it seems, than most people, the average person, would actually think. Well, the one thing that struck me in this book is there actually, I think it was this book, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, I've always got like five or six books going at once. I think it was this book that is making the claim uh, that the ancient Egyptians had lenses, um, which begins, you know, to address your thing that you always bring up. How the heck did people back in the day know there were rings on Saturn? You can't see that with your naked eye. But in this text, pretty sure it's this text, um, they're making the claim that lenses were available at this time. Anyhow, back to you. There is that implication, and that answered my question. And that's what I've always suspected, that perhaps they just had better tech than we thought. You know, not necessarily that they were driving around in cars, but that they had the capability to blow glass and did indeed have the means of having some sort of uh, optical magnification devices. And if you had a decent enough one, you would know that Saturn had rings. Well, if that was a true thing um, that they're claiming is true, uh, that tells you something about time. In my view, it would push everything a lot closer than we think, because after all, if you want to act like someone's closer to the Stone Age than the modern age, it's unlikely they're going to be blowing glass and crafting lenses when they only have copper tools to chisel stone and these kinds of ideas that were, were handed. But anyhow, uh, let's keep pushing. we got a lot to get through. we got questions for the second hour, and I would like to get through a lot more of this, Jason. It looks like Looks like we're going to have a time issue here. Chapter 5 is called Masonic Astronomy and is the beginning of the second part of the book. This is where the author begins explaining things as they relate to Freemasonry in a question-and-answer format. The first one is actually quite interesting on the name of the order. By what name were Masons anciently known? And the answer is, long before the building of King Solomon's Temple, Masons were known as the Sons of Light. Masonry was practiced by the ancients under the name of Lux, which means light, or its equivalent in the various languages of antiquity. All right. Uh, I could go with the six ways to Sunday. Um, 
here's where I think a lot of people that like to hate on organizations are going to say, see, there's the Lucifer idea. Um, I'm going to set all that aside because it's been done ad nauseum. Um, as I got into this portion of the book and they're acting like they're going to inform you of things, they do it in a Q&A format, except they're providing the question and the answer. In my view, that is just a way to conceal the fact that you're controlling the narrative. In other words, you're acting like the question being asked is the pertinent question. And what I found is in many of the questions, they were not that damn pertinent. Uh, that was my point of view, Jason. Yes, I was wondering about that. I also was uh, curious if this was something that was done in the 1800s just from a academic point of view, but I don't honestly know if that's a true thing or not. It could be academic, but as I read through, they do it over and over again in in the uh, text. Um, in my view, it's a way to control messaging. In other words, you're bringing up the thing that's going to be answered instead of just acting like there's all these questions and here's the group of questions that we're going to address, this kind of thing. In other words, we have this many symbols, we're going to decode this many symbols. That's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing a specific question brought up, whether it's valid in the mind of the reader or not, and that's the one they go at anyhow. Well, let's just be honest and say that the power structure is always trying to control the narrative, so that could be the answer right there. In my view, this book is all about controlling the narrative, and it really gave me the sense of damage control, where maybe 20, 30 years ago, you would never see a text saying, yep, we're tracking the sun, we're tracking the clock in the sky, all these symbols are about the sun, and these things in the sky. Um, I think it's a bit like damage control. Um, that's what it felt like to me, anyhow. So the author makes mention of the two sciences that Masons hold in special reverence, those being astronomy and geometry. He describes how the lodge is supposed to be laid out, east to west. He gives the dimensions and coverings of a lodge. The dimensions are limitless. And the three lights contained within. These lights are in the east, the south, and the west, but not the north. Each of these lights has an officer's station. The junior warden stands in the south, the senior warden in the west, and the master, or worshipful master, in the east. The worshipful master is the member who is in charge of the lodge and would preside over all the rituals and ceremonies. So people are probably wondering why east, west, and south. Um, it's about, just about the path of the sun, and it's a little weird to do it in that way, too. But what's being implied is the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, but the course at midday would be slightly south. Um, that's the claim that's being made, which is a true thing if you observe the sun for most parts of the world. But it just seems weird to me um, that this is why you're choosing three directions. Anyhow, Jason. Right. And this whole journey of the sun is exactly what is represented over and over and over again in all things related to Freemasonry, because they have what's called the Masonic journey. Masons are instructed to travel toward the east in search of light because the sun rises in the east and the sun is the great source of light. Next, let's talk about the Royal Arch. It may be described in nearly the same words as the Lodge and is no less than the starry vault of heaven or great zodiacal arch reaching from vernal to an autumnal equinox. The arch is said to be supported by three points which are emblematic of wisdom, strength, and beauty. They say it is so because no piece of architecture can be termed perfect unless it should have wisdom to contrive, strength to support, and beauty to adorn. So basically a few ideas going on here, like if you're an architect that's worth anything, what you're going to do is use the allegories of the natural world we live in to build with. Um, the thing about the Royal Arch is that I 
most people don't know that much about the sky. So I'll quickly just try to give you a visual of what the Royal Arch is. If you were to put half of the zodiacal circle up, putting the sign of Aries on the left and the sign of Libra on the right and place those on the ground, that would be the foundation for the Royal Arch. The keystone being the sign of Cancer in the usage of the order of the zodiacal signs currently being used here. Um, cancer would be the apex sign, that 30 degree sign would be the keystone. So there's that, Jason. Now we often hear Masons referring to King Solomon's Temple. Although the author seems to often mention that it was actually a real structure in history, symbolically it represents the temple not made with hands, but the one eternal in the heavens. He goes on to mention that all ancient temples were originally dedicated to the worship of the sun. The word temple is from the Latin tempus, meaning time. So any person who wants to know more about this, randomly go into Google Earth, turn on 3D buildings, and go look at any number of Catholic buildings. Look at how many of them have two towers, one on either side of the door, echoing the Joaquin Boaz idea, which is basically echoing the equinoctial points, spring and fall, and see if they're pointing east. Almost every Masonic temple that's fashioned in the correct way, according to their own words even, but you can observe this, has the front door facing east where the sun will rise. And then everyone's familiar with the idea of the pillars, Joaquin and Boaz. Go ahead, go out and start looking at churches, and you will see, in fact, the same ideas are being echoed over and over and over. And whether or not you like the organizations that are doing this I would submit to you there is a reason they are doing it. And in the same way, a nice big knife could be used to do malice or to make a beautiful thing. The information that they have tried to hold on to and are using has value, period. Anyhow, Jason. Next, we get to Hiram Abiff, who is a very important figure to Masons. Here is what the author has to say. In them, Hiram Abiff appears both as an authentic and a mystical personage. He is not only the cunning craftsman employed by King Solomon to beautify and adorn the actual temple, but also an emblematic being, representing the sun who, by his magnetic power, raises the royal arch of heaven and beautifies and adorns the terrestrial and celestial spheres, for which reason his name has a twofold meaning, significant of both characters. So this is a little weird, you know, look how you're reading this. It's it's like, you know, Hiram Abiff built this. And again, we're back to the allegory and the supposed biblical history. Um, in the biblical history, he's a metal worker. And of course, that's going to echo back to so many minds to the idea of Cain from the Cain and Abel story, you know, so much attributed to the lineage of Cain, giving us music, metal work. I mean, almost everything we have in this world is attributed to that lineage. But, you know, he, here we have it again, where they're blurring what they open openly now admit is allegory and what is actual history. So there's all that. And again, we're looking at probably some of the earliest origins of here's a stage, let's put actors on it. Okay, Jason. Moving on to chapter six, astron astronomical allegory of the death and resurrection of the sun. And they just continue on with the question answer format. The question here is explain more fully in what manner the sun is said by an astronomical allegory to be slain? The answer is, according to all the ancient astronomical legends, the sun is said to be slain by the three autumnal months, September, October, and November, represented as assaulting him in succession. And this ties back to the Hiram Abiff story as well, with the three people that assault him and he ends up dying. 
Right. So they made up an allegory that they passed off as a real history for a long time. But basically what's being said here, I'll illustrate more fully. So you make it to Libra. So everyone in their mind understands what's being encoded here. When the sun makes it to mid-June, June 21, something like that, that's the highest point of the sun or the highest the sun will reach in declination. When it goes by that day in midsummer for the northern hemisphere, um, it's going to said to be falling. As we get to fall or autumn, it will pass the sign of Libra, Libra the scales, and it will go through the autumnal equinox, equinox of points, of course, meaning equal day and night on the day of Truly the day of the equinox, night and day will be equal. But then it falls into these sinister signs. First the scorpion, then the centaur holding the bow and arrow, and then lastly the water goat, Capricorn. Those are the three signs to the three months that assault the sun. The idea here is that the sun falls by the Libra, the, the equinox sign of balance, and then is assaulted by the scorpion, but survives it. And then, lo and behold, the centaur assaults the sun. Meanwhile, the sun's power is weakening and weakening as it goes down to its lowest point in declination, which will be in or around the 21st of December, for most people thinking about this Christmas time. And then finally, by the time it makes it to the water goat, the sun is so beat up, it dies, it stands still for three days, it is its lowest point of power, lowest point of southern declination, and then it begins to rise and the days slowly lengthen again, the resurrection idea. So there's all that, Jason. The author describes astrology as being called the divine art by the ancients. The author also has this interesting little tidbit on Saturn. According to the teachings of astrology, Capricorn was the house of Saturn the most evil and wicked in his influence of all the planets. He is called the Great Infortune, and all that part of the zodiac within the signs of Capricornus and Aquarius was under his dominion. Saturn was also known as Kronos, or Time, which destroys all things, and in the poetical and allegorical language of mythology, devours even his own children. The figure of Saturn with his scythe is to this day an emblem of decay and death. The sun, therefore, when he entered Capricorn, passed into the house and under the dominion of Saturn or death. The author then goes on to describe how the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Osiris from the ancient Egyptian is a direct allegory for the annual journey of the sun. Okay, I think that's all pretty self-explanatory for the average person listening. Um, go ahead, man. Chapter 7, Astronomical Explanations of the Emblems, Symbols, and Legends of the Mysteries, Both Ancient and Modern, and the lost meaning of many of them restored. This opens the third part of the book. The author blatantly states that all of the ancient signs, symbols, emblems, and legends of the mysteries, both ancient and modern, have astronomical illusion. He also states that much of this illusion has been lost, in part or in whole, to many mystery school members, and this means Freemasons as well, throughout the years. So I think this kind of backs up the assertion that I made that as... Masonry in the European side of the world or the white side of the world began to get into this very old information held in alchemy, hermetic ideas, so many places, um, that they got corrupted versions or incomplete versions. And I have actually found very old accounts where supposedly Eastern masters kind of foresaw what the European communities were going to do with the information and said, you know what, you guys are not getting the whole enchilada because you're misusing it. And I could sit here all morning long 
to poke holes in in what I see as problematic in who this information is available and how it's delivered and, and all these kinds of things. But anyhow, the author next goes on to break down the Masonic symbols one by one. The first is the emblem of the seven stars. This is a direct symbol of the Pleiades or the seven stars in Taurus. So to begin to understand, uh, people really do need to understand a bit about when constellations rise, uh, what part of the year, and things like the Pleiades uh, have an association with signs like Taurus. There'll be big stars that people would recognize, like the orangey star Aldebaran. But go ahead, Jason, keep pushing. I'll try to elucidate as much as I can in the time we have. Next is the Ladder of Seven Rounds. The author has this to say. Among the ancients, every round was considered to be represented by a metal increasing in purity from the lowest to the highest, and these were again characterized by the names of the seven planets as follows. The first round is the lowest, therefore they will read from the bottom to the top. Number seven, gold, the sun. Six, silver, the moon. Five, iron, Mars. Four, tin, Jupiter. Three, quicksilver, Mercury, two, copper, Venus, and number one, lead, Saturn. So here we have the open admission that basically alchemical ideas are wrapped in this. This is the first time that you get the open allusion to what is alchemy. Everything he's stated here is basically verbatim what alchemy does to kind of I don't want to say codify, to illustrate things about nature. And these metals uh, were some of the earliest known, supposedly, to older versions of human beings, and they were attributed to certain aspects of nature. And while the average mind will think, oh, Jupiter the god, that's not what's being communicated here in an alchemical sense. It is aspects of nature. In the same way that these metals were just broke down, I could sit here and anyone who takes a prism will see that it's broken into seven colored spectrums of light. Each of those spectrums of light is attributable in the same way. As an example, uh, purple would be Jupiter, blue would be Saturn, I can go on and on, yellow Venus, uh, orange the sun. Um, all these aspects of nature were classified in these ways um, because they were going to be able to do things once the information was understood. Anyhow, Jason. Next, we have the Masonic Ladder of Three Rounds. It is a ladder leading up to the seven stars, or the Pleiades. It is a symbol of the sun's journey ascending from the winter solstice to the vernal equinox. The constellation Taurus and the Pleiades passes successively through the three signs of Aquarius, Pisces, and Aries. A symbol called the zodiacal ladder is mentioned next, with the same meaning attached. But the Masons go further to say that the three rounds of the ladder represent faith, hope, and charity, all in relation to the sun's journey, of course. So basically what they're doing is they're lengthening out the travel here. Instead of going from equinox to equinox, as is encoded into the building of Solomon's temple, they're going from the low point, the low declination, the lowest point of the sun in the sign of Capricorn, in or around December 21st, all the way up around the Keystone in Cancer, then back down to the fall equinox. Um, so they're just, they're encoding to, to the path of the sun. Anyhow, Jason. Next, we have the three steps. The three steps delineated on the master's carpet have an obvious reference to the three steps or degrees by which the initiated becomes a master mason. This also has the astronomical explanation of the sun, having already reached the vernal equinox by means of the zodiacal ladder, is now ascending to the summit of the royal arch at the summer solstice. This highest point is emblematic of the master's degree. 
And supposedly this is also why you see three steps in a lot of temples, as well as three steps in a courtroom to up to the judge and all that sort of thing. The same concept is apparently repeated in a lot of official sort of things. Well, as we broke down in a way older episode that we did here, only people above the royal, what they were calling the royal arch degree back in the 1800s, the Hebraic degree was associated with that, apparently. Um, You're looking at this. When you come to the spring equinox, you're in the sign of Aries, reckoning in the way this type of astrology does. The following sign will be Taurus the bull, then will be Gemini the twins, then that keystone at the top of the royal arch will be Cancer. So those are the three steps beyond. Aries. Anyhow, Jason. Next, we have the symbol of the winding steps. And to put it in simplest form, it's just another allegory for the glittering curve of the heavens. Next, we have corn, oil, and wine, said to be the rewards of the labor of the husbandman who has plowed and planted, watched the crops grow and mature, and has harvested and stored for the winter months ahead. Again, this would have been extremely important way back when. But this is also a key to the biblical references that they rely so heavily on. Um, whenever you see an allusion to corn, uh, the the well, semi-ancient, the more modern uses of the sign of Virgo, when Virgo the Virgin is rising, she's almost always depicted holding a ear of corn or a sheaf of wheat in her hand. That's the allusion to the corn. There's a few allusions going on here at once, but I would point out the wine is a huge encode because wine only becomes available to people in September when the grapes are harvestable. Um, It has been pointed out endlessly that whenever in biblical scripture the word wine or blood of Jesus is being used, you're being told flat out that you're at the fall equinox or there in September when the harvest of grapes can go on. Anyhow, Jason, those are the kind of tells for the initiated person who could understand what's being communicated here. Go ahead, Jason. Next, we have a pretty important symbol, the blazing star representing on the checkerboard floor that the sun in the midst of heaven as a symbol of deity. And as far as I know, this is embedded in the center of the checkerboard floor of every Masonic lodge. Well, this is interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of people want to say it's the sun. I forget exactly what they said, but there's also a corollary to Sirius the dog star, um, the brightest star in the sky, which is in the south. Um, And the reason that's important, because back in Egyptian times, apparently the dog star, um, when it rose, uh, it was tied to the inundation of the Nile, again, relating to when crops could be planted or this type of things. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, the dog star meaning that it was on the watch like a watchdog. Right. There's a whole story behind that with with in terms of how Orion, uh, which has also been called Osiris, that constellation is because that dog star is off his heel. Um, and then there's another one, the lesser uh, pupus or canis, lesser canine. I forget what it is. It's a uh, procyon is the star, the major star marking that, which is behind the big dog. But anyhow, these are other conversations. Something really important is next, the rite of circumambulation. And this is the way an initiate would walk around the temple in direct association with the path the sun takes from east to west via the south. And this is what you'd be doing in these rituals for your degrees that you would be taking. So the idea of circumambulation can be attributed to so many religious faiths. Um, There's a version of it in Islam going around the Kaaba or the cube. Uh, Buddhism has a version of it. Of it. You can look at so many places to see this idea being expressed. Go ahead, Jason. Next, we have the square. Thought that it may very well have come from the operative masons of the Middle Ages, it nonetheless is a right angle, or 90 degrees, which is the fourth part of a circle, 
which is a direct allusion to the division of the ecliptic and celestial equator into four equal parts. So we don't have time, but there is a whole interesting idea here that we could get into with the idea of the square and the triangle um, in alchemy and some of the oldest alchemy, things like Paracelsus and other things where they are using the science based on nature. They will tell you that the idea of the square is sorrow and sadness. And the idea of the triangle is the exact opposite. And the way it's expressed is because if you had like two light frequencies or some other magnetic frequencies coming together at a right angle, they'd be like crashing into each other. Whereas with the triangle idea, it would be more like a Y where the two energy sources converge and then go down together, having assimilated with each other and resonating with each other, continue down the Y. So it is a bit interesting to look at the idea of the Masonic square here, which is at right angle which does encode the square or cube idea, which is sadness in alchemy. So anyhow, you know, just to put a fine point, almost all of us in this world now, we live in rectangles and cubes, don't we? Anyhow, Jason. <laughs> yes, we do. Next, we have the Masonic festivals that used to be in June and December, and these are just direct references to the summer and winter solstices. Right. And just to be very clear, so people understand uh, in June in or around the 21st is the highest declination north of the sun. Uh, and then down around Christmas time is the lowest declination of the sun when the sun is at its weakest, um, the counterpoint. And of course, always, always an allegory for hell or fire and ice. Jason. Next, the circle embroidered by two parallel lines. The point in the circle represents the supreme being. The circle indicates the annual circuit of the sun, and the parallel lines mark out the solstices, within which that circuit is limited. There is the implication that the mason, by subjecting himself to due bounds, in imitation of that glorious luminary, will not wander from the path of duty. <laughs> no dogma, no creed, no what was all those things they claim they didn't have. Anyhow, keep going. Yeah, that one was pretty much uh, kind of pointed it out, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, among others. Go ahead. Next, we have the lambskin, and this is the aprons that you see every mason wearing. The vernal equinox, where the sign Aries is found, is what this is representing. This sign, as we have seen, teaches immortality as well as being emblematic of innocence and beauty. All right, to cut to the chase here, anytime you see the lamb or the sheep or the ram uh, in myth and story and religion, you're looking at Aries encoded. The reason Aries is being encoded is because it is the vernal equinox. So the idea of immortality here is the sun died when it was down at Christmas time stood still for three days, which you can observe, and then it began to rise towards the vernal or spring equinox where the sheep, the lamb, the ram, or Aries is. Even if you want to go look at the myth of, say, Jason and the Argonauts, what's he after? He's after the golden fleece. Hint, hint, hint. And, uh, you know, then we, if we take this out, we can start to show that the idea of immortality, healing, health, medicine, all these things tied up in the Golden Fleece or any other allegory that uses this. And the only people who would recognize it are, of course, initiated people who have been told what the symbols and allegory mean. Anyhow, Jason. And I think a great place to end our one is on the all-seeing eye. In most of the ancient languages of Asia, eye and sun are expressed by the same word, and the ancient Egyptians hieroglyphically represented their principal deity, the sun god Osiris, 
also Horus, I would add, by the figure of an open eye, emblematic of the sun, by whose light we are enabled to see, and which itself looks down from the midst of heaven and beholds all things. In like manner, Masons have emblematically represented the omniscience of the great architect of the universe. And by the way, somehow it made it onto your money, too. Not sure how that happened. Uh, We're told that it was just a fluke, and we're not even sure why or how it was approved. You know, this story goes on and on. So many people will have their own views about the all-seeing eye. But if you look through any given organization, whether you approve of what they're about or not, all of this stuff goes back to older ideas, which in fact is the science, the natural the science of the natural world, or a form of science that will only achieve what it wants to achieve in step with the natural system. That's the ideas being put down here. Anyhow, Jason, that does bring us near the top of the first hour. Um, we are going to get right back into submitted questions from subs. Um, anything you'd like to add? Well, this whole thing was just a really good review and just nailed home what I always knew, that all of this stuff just relates right back to the sun. Right. And, you know, it's sad to have to beat a dead horse, but, you know, this is everywhere. There is not an organization in existence today that matters or a tradition that does not have this stuff encoded or even underlying as a foundation to what they're about. Um, I would argue that most of what came to be in the West were corrupted versions, but there is also the idea that the West is on spiritual ascendance right now. And so many people in this part of the world beginning to awaken to other possibilities and no longer accept the old explanations as good enough. I think that's maybe reflecting. Uh, the idea that the West is on a spiritual upward incline. Anyhow, Jason, that brings us to the top of the first hour for episode 94, covering the Masonic symbols and encodings in their own words. Um, At the posting of this episode, there will be 94 free hours of content on Crow777radio.com. You don't need to log in. You can listen to anything you want. If you'd like to become a member, that's fantastic, too. Anyhow, there was such a huge turnout last time for the subscriber question. That is what we will be continuing forward with in the second hour. Anyhow, there it is, man. Hope to see you at Crow777radio.com. Cheers. Cheers.